3: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark, your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud.
0: Welcome everyone. I am Sarah. And I'm Becca. And we have a super spooky episode for you today. But first, Sarah, how are you feeling? I am so
3: excited for this. This has been a long time coming and I'm so happy that we're finally sitting down
0: and actually recording. How are you feeling? Same. I'm really excited to be doing this too. Finally, I'm currently sitting in my closet (laughs) to get the best sound in my house. We moved into a house like Earlier this year, and we don't really have much furniture in many of the rooms, so this is the best place for me to be. Honestly, audio quality
3: sounds great, so I'm glad you're nestled in there. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, cozy. I
0: also discovered that we have an attic that I what? did not know about. That's so it's creepy. Just above me right now. <laughs> That's perfect for this vibe. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I'm gonna have Dan take a peek up there later. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm scared for what you'll find. Hopefully, nothing. <laughs> Anyways, back to today's topic, Sarah. It involves. Candy, children, and poison. Do you have any guesses of what it could be?
3: Uh, Yes, I do have some guesses, especially with the spookiest holiday on the horizon. I have a feeling it's something to do with
0: Halloween. Yes, yes, (laughs) you're on the right track, but there's a lot to it. For everybody listening, we're going to start today's episode off with Sarah giving us a little bit of a background on the tradition of Halloween, and then I will get into the nitty-gritty of the topic. But before we do dive in, I want everyone to know that all the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in the episode description and in our show notes at thenutritionjunkie.com, and that's junkie with a Y. Also, the information in this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a doctor or registered dietitian in your area. This podcast may contain coarse language, mature subject matter, and content of a violent or disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, Sarah.
3: Oh my goodness! Take it away. For some reason, my heart is pounding right now. I'm like actually <laughs> I'm nervous. So for you. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So, Becca asked me to dive into the research and figure out when the heck and why the heck did we start dressing up our children in costume, sending them door to door at night to do the one thing we've told them never to do, take candy from strangers. It's the weirdest but most wonderful tradition with questionable safety standards, I would say. But as a kid, I absolutely loved Halloween. Becca, did you love Halloween?
0: Of course. (laughs) Of course. Unlimited amounts of candy.
3: Who doesn't love it? For sure. And then, so the costume side of things was always my favorite. Did you have a favorite Halloween costume growing up?
0: Yeah, so I would say that my Halloween costumes actually got better as the years went on. Yeah, I don't know. Did you have a, a favorite childhood Halloween costume? Yeah, my mom was a bit of
3: a, like, a Halloween boss. She would make all our costumes, <laughs> like, we'd pick them, like, two months in advance, and then she'd sew them, and we'd go to fabric land and, like, pick out the perfect <laughs> material. It was awesome. My all-time favorite was when I was a Hershey's Kiss, and she picked this really, like, crinkly, super shiny silver material And made me a dress that was like tight around my thighs, but then had a really big stuffed base to the dress. And then it went up and I had a pointy little hat on and like the paper (laughs) thing that said Hershey's Kiss. And it was so cute. I got a ton of compliments.
0: So that's a good memory. What's your best? So cute. Okay, so I have a few. I try to get pretty creative now that I can. (laughs) Um, But a couple years ago, Dan and I went as Rachel and Ross. Love. From Friends. Love that. Love that. So we went as the um, the you know the episode where they get married in Vegas. You're gonna hate me. I'm gonna not... have the sharpie all over. <gasps> no. I know. I know. <laughs> we should just stop this podcast now. I can't. <laughs> I <like> know. That. <laughs> Go on though. I'll catch up. I'll watch Friends. I feel like this is irrelevant to you, but yeah, we had like the sharpie on our face. So he had Ross written on his forehead, and then I was had like the mustache. Aww. But yeah, irrelevant to you. No, yeah, I love it. Maybe I love some it. people can relate. <laughs> I'm sure everyone um, can. <laughs> but my all-time favorite Halloween costume that nobody really understood was I went as a Freudian slip. Oh my gosh! Tell me how that's so good. <laughs> so I actually I got a a big white beard and like a cigar. And I had a sticker that went on my like outfit that said "Hello, my name is Freud," and then I wore a slip. I so I was a Freudian love slip. <laughs> that oh my gosh, a good pun costume. That is so good. Yeah, but nobody got <laughs> it. No one got it. Even when you nobody. told them, everyone was like, "What's yeah, a Freudian slip?" but I feel slip? like. But anybody that didn't take Psych 101 was just kind of like, "What are you talking about? Why do you have a beard?" <laughs> oh
3: my god, I think that's so good. Okay. So let's talk Halloween. In modern-day Canada, in a non-COVID year, of course, a typical Halloween looks something like this. It's October 31st. Kids, usually kids under 12, dress up in full Halloween costumes, so like superheroes, princesses, lots of Annas and Elsas, whatever. Hit the streets around sunset. And it's usually pretty cold. We are in Canada. So sometimes even snowing already, your costume usually has to have like enough wiggle room for a winter coat or a heavy sweater, whatever. Young kids go door to door with their parents. Older kids usually roll together as a pack. But there is this unspoken rule that once you hit your teens, once you're 13, you probably should stop trick or treating. I actually remember going out like, I'm pretty sure I was 12. It was the final year I went out and I went out with all my friends from school. But like, We'd go up to people's doors and ring the doorbell and you could just see that people were answering the door and being like,
2: you look just on the cusp of too old.
0: It's like they weren't as excited as they were for little kids, for sure. <laughs> no, I definitely went when I was like 15, 16. Did so you? We have that in common. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's way too old. If you can drive. Okay, so it's a lot
3: of fun for kids, clearly. Becca didn't want to stop. <laughs> but that's not how it's always been. Trick-or-treating, as we know and love it, actually only became popular in North America in the 1900s, with the earliest North American records dating back to, get this, 1911 in Ontario, Canada. How cool is that? I couldn't believe it when I read that. I was like, yes, we've got insulin, we've got poutine, we've got Halloween, earliest records of Halloween. (laughs) Lots of good stuff comes from Canada. So all of my information sources for this little history lesson are linked in the show notes, but I wanted to give a special shout out to a book called Halloween from Pagan Ritual to Party Night by Nicholas Rogers. I got so much information from this book. And if you're looking for a really, you know, a thick read on Halloween, Mm -hmm. this is the book for you. Some historians trace trick-or-treating back to ancient Rome to something called the Feast of Pomona, Pomona was the goddess of fruit and seeds, but most sources actually link Halloween and the more modern trick-or-treating customs to a Celtic festival called Samhain. And if you're reading, if you're going to try to Google that, it's it's spelt Samhain, S-A-M-H-A-I-N, but it's pronounced Samhain. And I know that because I Googled it and practiced it. <laughs> <laughs> and Samhain celebrates the end of summer and it welcomes the dark nights ahead. And it occurs every year at the end of October and early November. So this is a super spooky quote from that book that I mentioned by Nicholas Rogers. It was a period of supernatural intensity when the forces of darkness and decay were said to be abroad, spilling over from the shea, the ancient mounds or burrows of the countryside. So very spooky origins. We've got darkness. We've got decay. We've got supernatural intensity. Sounds pretty Halloween-y to me. Yeah, I have chills. (laughs) Do you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Your house is just really cold.
0: And it's that (laughs) attic. Definitely. There's a draft coming
3: (laughs) from the attic. So the Samhain Festival is said to have pre-Christian roots, but in the 19th century, the Catholic Church made November 1st All Saints Day. And All Saints Day honors all saints of the church that have attained heaven. And this... All Saints Day has the same kind of spooky vibes as Samhain. And it's believed that the first actual trick-or-treating customs evolved from an All Saints Day tradition where people would impersonate the souls of the dead and go around to receive offerings of food and drink on their behalf. Yeah, so... That's interesting. I think it's also interesting that we think of Halloween as this pagan holiday, but it actually has significant Christian roots. There's another Christian tradition in, 15, in 15th century Britain called All Hallow Tide, which spanned October 31st to November 2nd. And people would go house to house and collect soul cakes, which sounds so cute. And this practice was called souling. So that's definitely starting to sound a little more like the Halloween we know today, although I don't think many people would give out homemade cakes. So shortly after this, we see costumes beginning to enter the picture. Around 16th century Scotland, and we see youths starting to go house to house with masked or painted faces, reciting rhymes, and often threatening to do mischief. And honestly, when I read that, I was like, I can't think of anything more terrifying than a band of 16th century Scottish youths reciting rhymes at me with their faces painted. First of all, they probably smell pretty bad. (laughs) And also, what do you think mischief was in the 16th century? I don't know, like pulling potatoes up before they were ready? (laughs) That would actually be really mean. People need those potatoes to survive the winter, or like stealing a goat, kicking over water pails. I don't know. I just feel like it was probably a, a pretty bad time. And then, so this practice gets a little more contemporary by 1895 in Scotland. And then people in costumes start visiting homes carrying scooped out turnips and asking for cake, fruit, and money.
0: Money is a pretty bold ask. Have you seen these turnips? No. They're the most terrifying looking thing. Oh my gosh, I should have looked on it up. planet. Yes. You have to look this up later because they are frightening. So, so frightening. Why? Compare them to a jack-o'-lantern. Like what's frightening about them? Because it kind of looks like a, the turnip kind of looks more like skin in a way. Oh my God. <laughs> and so it just kind of looks more like a skeleton face, but it's just distorted like turnips and other like fruits and vegetables are. It's very weird.
3: Yeah, that's definitely, that has an extra ghoulish aspect to it. I feel like pumpkins are so cute and round and plump. And a turnip is definitely more wrinkly and white and (laughs) And like, I just love the idea of collecting fruits and cakes. And I think all the kids would just eat the cakes ASAP and then probably just leave the fruit in their turnips and it would rot under their beds for weeks to come. Oh my gosh. (laughs)
1: Everyone
3: probably had the worst pile of Halloween leftovers back in the day. Okay, so this is where things start to get fun. So by the 1800s, Canada has a growing population of settlers from Ireland and Scotland. And the earliest reference to Halloween in North America actually comes from Kingston, Ontario, 1911, when a newspaper reported children guising from house to house. And then the earliest reference in North America to the phrase trick-or-treat actually comes from Alberta in 1927. So I feel like we were real thought leaders in this this tradition. In this one area. (laughs) In this one very specific area. (laughs) Borrowed traditions from another country. (laughs) Sounds like us. Sounds like us. (laughs) So the popularity of trick-or-treating spread throughout the United States and Canada. There was a brief pause actually during World War II due to sugar rationing, saving resources for war efforts. So most parades and celebrations were canceled. During the war, trick-or-treating was mostly discouraged, and kids would sometimes still go door-to-door. Maybe people would get what they could, but it was after the war, in the 1950s and beyond, when candy and trick-or-treating really took off, and it's been increasing in popularity ever since. A report from the National Confectioners Association in 2005 indicates that 80% of adults in the U.S. give out Halloween candy and 93% of children and teenagers intend to either trick-or-treat or or enjoy a Halloween-related activity. So, clearly Halloween is still a super popular tradition. Mm -hmm. So now let's get to the goods. When did candy enter the picture? Halloween has come a long way from scooped-out turnips. Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a kid, we would actually use our pillowcases and we would nearly fill them. Anyways, in the early 1900s, the trick part of trick-or-treat was actually much more prominent. So youth, mostly boys, would engage in light pranking, targeting mailboxes, fences, and gravestones. You could not pay me enough money to prank a gravestone. I'm way too superstitious. (laughs) Same here. No way. In the 1950s, candy makers decided that this was their time to shine. So the war was over, trick-or-treating was back in fashion, and they started making small, individually packaged and inexpensive candies that were easy to buy and distribute. And by the end of the 1970s, these individually wrapped candies were seen as the only legitimate treat to distribute to trick-or-treaters. Before that, you could probably get away with apples, cupcakes, Things like that. But by the 70s, it wasn't socially acceptable anymore. And I think Becca will probably tell us why. You betcha. (laughs) I still remember the house in my neighborhood that would give out toothbrushes. And I feel like as kids, we did not love that house. And I also more fondly remember the house that gave out full-size O'Henry's. That was the best house.
0: Was it, though? Yes. O'Henry's are questionable.
3: (laughs) But what is questionable about a O. Henry?
0: I don't know. There's something weird about peanuts and chocolate that I just what? find unappealing to me. Yeah, chocolate-covered peanuts. I'm more of a raisin gal. What if it was peanut butter and
3: chocolate? That I'll do. But that's it's basically very- just <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's
0: just peanuts and chocolate, <laughs> but mushed up. <laughs> okay. I feel like I would prefer the toothbrush in that scenario. That's how
3: strongly you feel. Yeah, <laughs> I probably wouldn't eat the o. Henry, so at least I could at make At least you could brush your toothbrush. teeth. <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, I'll trade you an O'Henry for a toothbrush. No problem. Deal. I'm going to finish it off with a history of some little Halloween candies. And I love this little story because it sounds like something I would have written from my wildest imagination when I was like eight. So, Milton Hershey. He made the first Hershey's Milk chocolate bar in 1900 and the first Hershey's Kiss by 1907. So he was a real pioneer, some might say a hero, in the mass production of chocolate because before this, chocolate was a super luxurious and kind of rare good. And now, thanks to Hershey, it was available to average Americans. By 1917, Harry Reese joins the Hershey's Chocolate Factory. And he was so inspired by what he saw that he began experimenting with chocolate creations in his own basement, where he created the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup in 1928. Visionaries working together in the same factory. And then, same time. So this is an era of huge innovation. Frank Mars is in Minnesota. He's a struggling candy maker. He creates the Milky Way, followed by the Snickers bar. Followed by the Three Musketeers, then the Mars bar, then M&M's. That's why I think that's amazing. Like all in this, this, what, 30-year period, maybe 40 years by the end of it, all of the classic chocolate bars.
0: That's amazing. And I had no idea that they were named after real people. I
3: know. For the most part. I
0: know. I think that's what makes it so like cute. (laughs) It is cute. I think M&M's is also... I think it's like two last names or something Yeah, it like is. That. It's Mars,
3: and I forget the other name, but it's one of them is from Frank, Frank Mars, and then he partnered with someone else with an M last name. And anyways, I love that. And then, okay, so candy corn, another classic. How do you feel about candy corn, Becca? I actually like candy corn. Me too. It's, it's divisive, <laughs> so I, w- I just had to ask. Some people really think it's gross, but I think it's pretty good. It was invented in the 1880s. Not much else to report there. And finally, the worst candy of all time, Rockets.
0: Oh, my gosh. I'm going to fight you on this. (laughs) I just know
3: I'll fight you on this because it tastes like chalk. It feels like chalk. I feel like (laughs) no, if you like if you like rockets, then you might have pica.
0: Oh, my gosh. When you mentioned that rockets was going to be in this segment, I was like, maybe I do have (laughs) pica. Awful. I think they taste so bad. Okay, so Rockets,
3: if you're an American listener, Rockets are called Smarties in America. I think they were originally called Smarties, but we call them Rockets in Canada because we have another candy called Smarties, which is a delicious, colorful, candy-coated little chocolate thing, very similar to an M&M. But we call those Smarties. And so we call the garbage chalk candy that comes in a little plastic wrapping Rockets. (laughs) And then in the States, you call Rockets Smarties. I hope that was clear. <laughs> I hope that was easy to Makes follow. Makes sense to me. So yeah, that's actually, and there's actually used to be a Rocket candy factory in Toronto on King West, and those are called the Candy Factory Lofts today. I just thought that was kind of cool. Oh, so cool. Cool and local.
0: Very cool. That's
3: the end of my intro. Are you going to ruin Halloween
0: candy for me? Not quite. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> Anyways, we'll get into this topic, which is, not as much fun as what we've been talking about, unfortunately. Halloween candy tampering or Halloween sadism. Ooh.
3: Sadism? Mm-hmm. Sadism. That's another name for Halloween candy tampering?
0: Yep. It's the name oh that the researchers use because, <gasps> yes, there is research done on this topic.
3: That is so interesting. PhD in Halloween sadism.
0: So cool. That's
3: in our future. <laughs> Next step. <laughs>
0: Oh, no, not more education. No, we done school. Anyways, um, Halloween sadism has been a controversial topic since the 1950s. The term Halloween sadism includes any tampering of Halloween candy that could result in harm. So this hmm. includes poisoning or weaponizing of candy with things like needles or razor blades or essentially anything that could hurt you. Uh. As a legend has it, there are multiple strangers looking to poison children every single Halloween. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So dressing up and trick-or-treating, as you were saying, Sarah, is something that's more so done in North America and specifically in the U.S. and in Canada. And while Halloween sadism is definitely something that I personally heard of as a kid living in Canada, it's by no means as hot of a topic as it is in the U.S., so this time every year, there's newspaper articles and segments that warn parents about their children's Halloween candy. And to kind of show you the extent of this fear-mongering, I pulled up a couple headlines that oh I want to share with you. So um, the International Business Times titled an article, Halloween Candy Gone Wrong, Four Dangerous Goody Bag Treats. And in this article, they claim that meth, edibles, Rods and thumbtacks are things to look out for in your children's treat bags. Which seems-
3: Meth edibles? hmm Oh, my gosh. Wait, what year was that? I'm just curious if this kind of, like, fear-mongering around Halloween sadism, my new word, is, like, current, or if this is from, you know, the past couple decades.
0: Article that I'm about to tell you the title of was from 1970, but the one that I just mentioned was more recent. So it's still something that's like talked about constantly around wow. this time of the year. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, so the second article I found was a New York Times article from 1970, and it's called Those Treats May Be Tricks. And in this one, they discuss numerous unconfirmed instances of poisoning, poisonings and sharp objects that were put into candy wrappers. Oh,
1: mm-hmm.
3: the, the, like, the sharp objects in candy just like hurts my mouth to think about. I know. I like shudder oh. down my spine. Ugh. I hadn't really thought about it
0: until you said that. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yeah, so this leads us into kind of what we'll be doing today. So I'll do a deep dive into the cases that made Halloween candy tampering the seeming issue that it is. Then I'll look into the research to uncover whether or not parents should be concerned about their children's candy. Cool. I'm excited. <laughs> Me too. So to start. There are a few instances that have led to the creation of this term, Halloween sadism, and the fear that surrounds it. So, as I mentioned, these did begin around the 1950s, and it's said that the birth of Halloween sadism occurred in 1959. Okay. When a dentist by the name of William Shine handed out laxatives. (gasps) He actually did that? Yes. He could have handed out toothbrushes. what a missed opportunity have missed opportunity but yeah so about 30 children became ill with the laxatives, and we're talking laxative ill so yeah you know it was bad yeah but luckily none of the kids suffered any long-term damage Aww. but uh regardless shine was charged with outrage of public decency and unlawful dispensing of drugs so, again, this was the first case of stranger danger that was ever recorded. Wow. Okay. So, a few years later, on Halloween in 1964, a Long Island housewife by the name of Helen File began handing out ant buttons full of arsenic, steel wool cleaning pads. So, like those yep. SOS pads you clean your sink with. Yeah. And wrapped dog trees to children that she deemed too old to oh, be trick-or-treating. Treat you would have gotten so, one. Yeah. Had I lived in Long Island in 1964, I may have eaten some arsenic.
3: Wow.
0: That's petty to the extreme. I know. But I, I honestly, I think that she was trying to be funny. Yeah. she okay. just handed it. I feel like she handed it to the children that she thought could make the decision as to whether or not they should eat the candy, right? She right. wasn't giving it to infants and-, and
3: like if you're giving out steel wool it's not like you're like hmm, maybe this is a tootsie roll it's like very clearly <laughs> something you shouldn't eat yes okay <laughs> okay but she got in trouble
0: um, oh yeah get very this good. she was sent to the hospital for observation oh, oh. as one would when yeah. a woman was behaving hysterical in the 1960s right. hmm And she was given a misdemeanor charge for having endangered the life and health of a child. (gasps) Okay. So, nothing actually happened in either of these incidences. They were more so kind of like the founding fathers or mothers of this fear. Okay. However, there have unfortunately been a few deaths that have been associated with Halloween candy. And I'm going to tell you a few of those stories. Aw. I'm sad already because you know it's kids
3: or at least that's my prediction.
0: It is really sad, but I think it's also important to know just because of all of the misinformation or information that's out there on this topic. Like, is it really the public health concern that it needs to be? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an important topic.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But in
0: 1970, in Detroit, Michigan, a five-year-old boy by the name of Kevin Tostin became seriously ill after consuming some Halloween candy. He died a few days later in what ended up being a heroin overdose. Oh. Yes. So upon their initial investigation, the police found heroin sprinkled over Kevin's candy. But it didn't Really make that much sense since all of his candy was seemingly laced with heroin. Okay. So, after further testing, they concluded that Kevin had actually swallowed a whole heroin capsule and that the capsule had come from his uncle's stash of heroin. Oh my gosh.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, that's really devastating. Poor Kevin. I know. So sad. When the family heard that the uncle maybe guilty of criminal neglect they sprinkled the candy with more heroin to throw the police off and i actually i spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened to this uncle like what mm-hmm. he was charged with but i couldn't find a single source of anything online mind wow. you this was this was in the 70s but i thought it was kind of strange but i feel like it also goes to show that the media seemingly lost interest when they realized that this this story no longer fit their narrative.
3: Right. It wasn't actually nefarious candy tampering. It was exactly.
0: a tragic accident. Mhm. Oh, that's so sad. I know. I know, so sad. And then this next story is super tragic as well, but it's also likely one of the most famous. Okay. So in 1974, so four years later, in Pasadena, Texas, Timothy O'Brien, who was eight years old at the time, and his sister Elizabeth, who was five, went trick-or-treating with their father, Ronald O'Brien. A friend and their father, Jim Bates, also joined them. While they were making their way through the neighborhood, they stopped at one house where there was nobody coming to the door And while the kids and Jim continued to the next house, Ronald hung back just to see if the homeowner would eventually come to the door. Hmm. When he caught up with the group, he had a handful of pixie sticks and he distributed them to the children. Okay. And when they got home, Timothy asked his father if he could have some candy and he picked the pixie stick to have. Okay. Upon tasting it, Timothy claimed that it was really bitter And his dad got him a beverage to wash it down with. So almost immediately, Timothy began vomiting, and he was dead upon arrival to the hospital. Oh, my gosh. What was it? I'll get to that. Uh. So four other pixie sticks were found in the neighborhood. Yeah. And Ronald had actually given one other child a pixie stick along their route, one child had actually fallen asleep with the candy in their hand after they oh. weren't able to open, like the plastic seal. Oh my gosh! Yes, so one lucky, lucky child that gave me a little uh, chill. I know <sighs> it's it's crazy. I'd love to see where that person is now. Like,
3: yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, what did you do with that? The life that you've been given. The, you're so lucky. You were mm-hmm. so close to consuming that pixie stick.
0: <gasps> okay. I know. So they brought them in for analysis. So Hmm. they brought all the Pixie sticks in and they found that the top two inches of each straw was filled with cyanide crystals. What? Now I want to take one minute just to explain what cyanide is, because I actually, like I've heard of it, but I've never really understood what it is, what it does. Okay. So in popular culture, it is Often what spies or secret agents have placed, like, in the back of their mouths, like, in their molars, just in case they're captured. So if you've seen, like, James Bond or anything like that, if somebody gets captured, they'll, like, clamp down on their jaw and release the cyanide and essentially die instantly. Kill themselves? Yes.
3: Oh, my gosh. They don't want to give away their secrets. Right. Okay. Yeah, but dang, that's intense.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's why it's just a spy movie. It's not like Okay. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Bound to be a bit intense. (laughs) But yeah, so cyanide contains a carbon atom that is triple bonded to a nitrogen atom. The chemicals claim to have a bitter almond taste, Mm -hmm. as well as smell, and it synthetically comes in either a gas or a crystal form. But you can actually find small amounts of cyanide naturally in some things. So cyanide can be found in cigarette smoke. I guess that's not naturally, yeah. but it's also in- <laughs> But it's, in, everywhere. it's, a, it's it common, is everywhere. It's common. It's common. Mm-hmm. It's also in the pits and seeds of fruit. Mm-hmm. I knew that. So, I knew it was in apple seeds. Yeah. Yeah. And like peach pits, cherry pits, things oh. like that. So they contain small amounts of this stuff and it's called cyanogenic glycoside. Okay. Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. I had to read it out phonetically. <laughs> So if consumed or inhaled, the natural plant toxin transforms into hydrogen cyanide, which is poisonous to humans, but also to animals. Mm -hmm. And this is how I initially learned about this because I have a dog, as you know, Sarah, Mm -hmm. and you're not supposed to give your pets the pits of like peaches or avocados and same with apple cores. You're not, you're not supposed to give your dog an apple core. And the reason being is the concentration of cyanide would be much higher in their smaller bodies. Yeah. Humans, we can have small amounts of this and be okay. Interesting. I know. But in 2017, a UK man named Matthew Cream cracked open a cherry pit and he tasted the inside of it. And he thought it tasted kind of like an almond. So he yeah. ate it that way. And then he ate two more cracked pits. And he was rushed to the hospital after three cherry pits. Oh my goodness. With cyanide poisoning. Okay, so, I so was you really don't need a lot. You don't, but if you swallow the pit whole, it does not yeah. have the same effect. So it's just when these things are are split are open. Are cracked open. Because mm-hmm. we probably can't digest the outer
3: like shell of the pit. Okay, that's so interesting though, because you might, cra- like. let's say you were to crack open a cherry pit and give it a little taste. If it tasted like almond, you'd be like,
0: well, why not eat this? Exactly. Also... There's no warning label on like, your cherry. cherries <laughs> or, yeah, on your apples. But I guess it's just expected that you're not going to do that.
3: Right. But I feel like that's not super common
0: knowledge. No. Hopefully now it is. Hopefully now. Yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. No, I found that incredibly interesting. So I wanted to share that with you. But the synthetic form of cyanide is most hazardous as a gas, but it also has lethal effects as a crystal.
3: Okay. That's what was in these pixie sticks. Yes, exactly.
0: And the reason that it is so lethal is that it stops the body cells from being able to use its oxygen. And the heart and brain are usually the most affected. Right. I'm okay. sorry. It's Aww. sad stuff. But yeah, so now, you know, this could easily be a recipe for disaster. Okay, so I, I have more
3: questions. Kevin, mm-hmm. poor Kevin, had the pixie stick. Was it Kevin mm-hmm. or was it Tim. So this is Timothy. This is Timothy. Okay, Timothy had his pixie stick. But do they get the people who filled the pixie sticks? There's more to this story. Oh, okay. I thought you were done. Okay, keep <laughs> going. Keep going.
0: I'm done. No, I, I just did like a little interlude to tell you what cyanide is. Okay, perfect. Because I just
3: think it's so weird how, like, he wasn't coming to the door. This person wasn't coming to the door. The dad was like, no, we're getting this candy. And he stayed mm-hmm. to wait for the pixie sticks. And then, like, the person inside had time to tamper with them? I'm so I'm so curious. Keep going.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. This gets interesting. Okay. But also very sad. So days after Timothy's death, his father, Ronald, helped police retrace their steps. He pointed out the home that they had gone to, where they got the pixie sticks from, that was seemingly vacant on Halloween. And this home was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin. However... Melvin had an airtight alibi, as he worked at an airport that was nearby, and there was almost 200 people that saw him that evening that could vouch for where he was, and he was working until about 11 p.m. that night. So following this dead end, detectives clearly began looking into Ronald after knowing what happened, and it turned out that he was in a tremendous amount of debt, and he had recently sold their family home. Oh, my God. Okay. Yes. Such a curveball. I know. I'm glad you think that because I reframed this story to try to make it less obvious. (laughs) But a month before Halloween, Ronald purchased $20,000 life insurance policies on both of his children, so on Timothy and on Elizabeth. Hours after his son's death, he made a call to collect the policy, but was clearly unable to do so so soon after his son's death. And a few months earlier, he had also made a call to a friend who worked at a chemical company to inquire about what constitutes a fatal dose of cyanide. And then he was found with five pounds of cyanide. So, wow. Sarah, who do you think did it? Ronald. Is that his name? It was Ronald. Ronald. <laughs>
2: Oh, that is
3: disgusting. I hate that guy. But like why would his friend just told him? He didn't like, hey, why are you curious about a lethal dose of cyanide?
0: You know, I didn't I didn't find that on the internet. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) So I don't know. That was such a curveball. I know. And so this guy, this douchebag, Mm -hmm. Ronald, never admitted guilt, but it only took a jury one hour of deliberations to convict him. Yeah, okay, good. Yes. Thank goodness. So on March 31st, 1984, mm. he was sentenced to death by lethal injection, which is still used as a capital punishment in Texas today. Wow. And then his wife, and her name is Danine. she left him. Good. Obviously. And he never saw his daughter again. Okay. Uh, the wife actually claims that before Halloween that year, Ronald had booked an appointment to buy life insurance policy for her. But that the premiums were too expensive on her because she was an adult.
3: Wow. So he did another. So she thinks children. That she was the
0: intended victim.
3: Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's awful. Yes. Okay. Weren't they trick or treating with a friend and another kid? Mm-hmm. Did he give a pixie stick to the other kid too?
0: Yep. So he handed out four pixie sticks. And I think he did this to kind of make it less obvious. Throw the, yeah, throw yeah. the cops off. He did give it to one random child as well, so I think that that was specifically intended to throw the cops off, mm-hmm. but they were able to collect all four, thankfully. Wow. That's mm-hmm. awful. Okay. Yeah. Good story. <laughs> I know. I still I think I still have one thing left here. <laughs> okay, so Danine, mm-hmm. she never cashed in the life insurance policy for Timothy, claiming that it was blood money, yeah. which made me yeah, really happy that's really to hear. Sweet. Good mom. And while Robert was dubbed the Candyman killer, mm. his ex-wife had some le- less flattering ways to describe him. <laughs> I'm sure she did. And she went on record saying he is perverted. Perverted.
3: <laughs> <thought> very <laughs> that, funny. That's a quote.
0: <laughs> yes, Janine. <It is>. <laughs> Aw,
3: that's a terrible story. I, I know. Can't believe that someone would do that. I know. For twenty thousand dollars. Your son. Oh, I hate it. Yeah, that's a terrible story. So when you hear something like that and his name, I mean, the Candyman Killer, that's a really media-worthy kind of name. Like, it's really Mm eye-catching. I can see how fear around Halloween candy would snowball from that. Even though it's a father to a son, it's not a random kind of attack. I can see mm-hmm. how if you just saw Candyman Killer in the news, you would maybe think that it's something you need to be actively concerned about.
0: Absolutely. I agree. It's too catchy of a name. They should have just gone with Pervert. should have given him Pervert. Them a pervert. <laughs> yeah.
3: Pixie Stick Pervert. Pixie Stick Pervert. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually pretty good.
0: Thank also, you. Pixie Sticks. What do you think? Into them. They're like soft rockets. They are like crushed up rockets.
3: <laughs> Although I don't mind a pixie stick. Yeah, it's it's literally just sugar it's just that you're pouring down your throat. Sugar.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't hate them. Okay. So for years after these incidences, many hospitals offered x-rays for Halloween candy. However, hospitals did? Hospitals did. Wow. This practice is a bit impractical. As you can't detect things like drugs or poison with an x-ray mm. so not only is it super expensive to maintain a practice like this but it can also offer a false sense of security right if for any reason there was a drug or poison in candy mm-hmm. and I'm trying to think back of my days in Thunder Bay Ontario and I don't remember any hospitals doing this in my hometown I was wondering if did they do this in the zoo? No, not at all. No. But I do, like, my
3: parents would go through our candy. Oh, they would. They would. They would sort through it with us. And, like, mm. and they would say, if it's open, you have to throw it out. That's wild. Yeah. So they definitely
0: read these articles. They
3: definitely, I guess, bought into the panic a little bit. They
0: did. And, I mean, rightfully so. Why not? Why not? Just better safe than sorry. It was, sorry. like, part of
3: the routine. It was kind of fun. Like, we'd get home... And like me and my brothers would just dump our pillowcases out everywhere, like in separate corners, so that we could keep our candy away from each other. (laughs) And then we'd sort through it like one by one and just make sure that nothing was open.
0: I guess I I personally kind of did that a little bit, where I used to organize my candy (laughs) and I used to put it in like little Tupperwares. Like this is where the Smarties go. Oh my god! Cherry blasters go. And then based on what I wanted, I knew how many I had left. So. I didn't eat something if I only had one left, unless I really wanted oh it. Oh my
3: gosh, that's so funny! Mine for sure just went right back in the pillowcase, like <laughs> a full
0: sack. That's so cute, though. Aww. yes. So I kind of did my my own analysis of my candy, I guess. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you one more story before we get into the cold hard stats. Oh my goodness! Okay, and this one's from Canada.
3: Oh,
0: so in Vancouver, in 2001, a four-year-old girl by the name of Tiffany Trung also died after eating some Halloween candy. Mm. This incident made the news headlines and parents were obviously advised by police to throw out all of their Halloween candy. However, after more investigation, it was found that this poor girl had actually contracted a streptococcal infection
3: and had died of
0: sepsis. (gasps) Unrelated to Halloween candy? Unrelated, it's assumed that it's unrelated. Right. So streptococcus can lead to infections ranging from strep throat Mm -hmm. or to necrotizing fasciitis, or as you commonly know it, flesh eating disease. Wow. And I'm sharing this one last since it's more so instances like these where the news properly cover the retraction and the true story. So rather than when I Googled the story, did I just see headlines? I saw like the real story, like this child did not die of Halloween candy. It was a more serious, or I guess not more serious, but Mm -hmm. it was a different issue.
3: Yeah, but like even so the news retracts their article and, and what happened. But like, let's say, let's say on a Monday after Halloween, they put out the first article that a young girl dies from a terrible illness Mm-hmm. after consuming Halloween candy, like even if they incorrectly make that link and then correct the next day, the memory of reading that first article is probably so jarring to parents and like giving that order that to throw out all your Halloween candy, like those Absolutely. memories will stand out so much more strongly than like, oh, they corrected it. Like it's gone now. It's not gone now. Fear is still there.
0: For sure. And more so in the States, there are some, there are some cities that have canceled Halloween during certain years where things like this have come about and they'll just cancel Halloween, cold turkey, it's done, even mm. after some information comes out saying that it wasn't because of Stranger Danger. Oh, that'd be a mm-hmm. bummer for the kids. I know, would be. So most of the stories that I did come across when I was researching were more so similar to this one than to the stories of Timothy O'Brien or even that of Kevin Mm Tostin. And some other instances included things like heart failure, drug overdoses, or allergies that coincidentally occurred around Halloween night. And while there are many reports of Halloween candy tampering, most of them are isolated events and very, very few of them have actually resulted in death. Mm. Most that have been reported are false or end up being false. Okay. Where either children have tampered with their own candy as a joke or to get attention. But then there was also one incident in 2018 where a man in Oakdale, California was arrested after falsely reporting metal objects in his children's candy. And after further investigation, they found that the objects had the father's DNA on them.
3: Wow. So yes. he just put, what would be the
0: motive behind that? So I was thinking about this and the only two things that I could come up with is he was either trying to get like a rouse out of the neighbors Mm -hmm. or maybe he was trying to sue the Halloween candy companies. Oh, I don't know. That's a good guess, actually. Hmm. I don't know. Or just trying to freak people out. (laughs) For sure. And the reason I'm not saying his name here is because he has... Very active on Instagram. So he is clearly not in prison. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> I don't want him to get like a Google alert that we talked about. So you in, you oh, searched yeah. him on Instagram? <laughs> of course, I did.
3: That's funny. <laughs> well, I can't believe he's not. He doesn't have a private account. Oh, no. He's very active. Okay. All
0: mm-hmm. right. Very active <laughs> and very public.
3: Interesting.
0: All right. In Canada between 2008 and 2019. So last Halloween there were only four reports of suspected tamperings made to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. But of those, no illnesses or deaths were reported. Hmm. Okay. And as I mentioned, there's a lot more reports in the U.S. And there's actually a researcher and criminal justice professor at the University of Delaware who has dedicated some of his work to things like Halloween sadism. That's so cool. And Sarah, this guy is amazing. (laughs) On his website, which is uh, joelbest.net, he has a photo of himself popping out of a large Hershey bar. (laughs) Aw. He's so cute. He just (laughs)
3: lives for Halloween and Halloween candy. Yeah, he loves it.
0: Aw. But we'll definitely be reaching out to him for an interview next Halloween. That would be the best. The Joel (laughs) best. The Joel best. (laughs) So his research shows that there have only been 102 reported cases of Halloween sadism between the years of 1958 to 2012. 102? 102.
3: Between
0: 50 years. And the 2010s. Oh, 60 years. Wow. Okay. Okay. So Best states that he has been unable to find a substantiated report of a child being killed or seriously injured by a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. Of the reported cases, the highest peaks over the years occurred in 1970, 1971, and 1982. Bess claims that these peaks often occur when there has recently been a public health scare of some sort. Sarah, do you know... Or remember what happened in 1982, specifically in Chicago? I don't. It's a big one. Really? Yep. A fire? <laughs> what <Nope>. happened? <laughs> so it was the Tylenol poisoning murders. <gasps> oh, I
3: wouldn't have remembered that, but I have heard. Yes. Mm. In September and Of course of October, that would, yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
0: In September and October of that year, seven people died after taking what they thought was Tylenol, but was actually capsules of potassium cyanide. There's cyanide again. It's popping up everywhere. The culprit has never been caught, ever. Right. But the incidences did lead to new anti-tampering laws mm-hmm. and the implementation of that like peel back lining that's on pill bottles. Mm-hmm it obviously caused a lot of fear in communities through the US during that year as they didn't know where the cases were occurring if it was just specific to Chicago or if it was happening elsewhere yeah so clearly that instilled a lot of fear in people that makes so much sense that that
3: would happen and then people would be scared to let their kids eat stuff from strangers like that checks out to
0: me i know and i was trying to find what happened in like the 70s the early 70s and There's a lot of stuff about asbestos, but I don't think that people would be reporting issues with their Halloween candy because of Asbestos. asbestos. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder. So to answer the looming question today, has anyone died of Halloween candy tampering at the hands of a stranger? It doesn't sound like it. And while crime rates do tend to go up on Devil's Night, The issue of Halloween sadism seems to be taken out of control with media reporting. The initial stories make the headlines, but the retraction or follow-up disclosing that there was no association between the candy and injury are either not published or not spread quite like the articles that are promoting the initial fear. And I also found some interesting information um, from a study conducted by MIT researchers that found that fake news spreads 10 to 20 times more quickly than real news on Twitter. Uh, and that fake news is 70% more likely to be shared than real stories. So, <gasps> those are good stats. I know. So clearly reporting and the sharing of what's being reported is part of the problem. That is so interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: hmm mm-hmm. And then my last point here. While candy may not be the real harm to children on Halloween... The actual danger seems to be something that we deem far less scary, and that's cars. Oh, oh. hmm So in 2019, a study found that the risk of being a pedestrian on Halloween night increased your risk of being hit by 43%. Oh, my goodness. Compared to other control evenings and stuff. Yeah. So... I guess my advice would just be to wear bright colors, reflective gear, maybe check your candy, (laughs) look both ways. Yeah. And obviously wear your mask. (gasps) Oh yeah. Wear your mask, especially this year, your
3: Mm -hmm. Halloween mask and your protective mask. Oh, that was so interesting. I, first of all, I feel very comforted that there's not one terrible cereal Halloween candy tamperer that's and there's also no terrible stories about razor blades. Like razor blades, in my mind, was part of the legend,
0: for sure. And there was one with um, like pins. Yeah, uh, I hate that. Pins, but I was a little bit more selective with which stories I I put into this. And it it definitely is an interesting one, but it also doesn't seem like it was a that big of a fear. Like it it punctured one child, but it didn't actually injure them. Right. And okay. Everybody else. Tossed their candy or checked it before they they ate it. Hmm. Interesting.
3: Mm-hmm. Do you feel comforted that it's not as big of an issue as you know maybe I would have previously thought, or as my parents clearly <laughs> thought when I was a kid? <laughs> but still, those are some twisted stories. Like the pixie stick one. That's that's going to stick with me. I didn't like I that. Know. That's awful.
0: It's so sad. But yeah, I guess the moral of the story here is that you don't need to be as anxious as you might be as a parent sending your kids out on Halloween, at least not about the candy. Yeah. The cars, Maybe COVID. Yeah. Maybe the COVID. Cars COVID. Yep.
3: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Ah, that was so good. Happy oh, first thank episode. You.
0: Thanks Sarah. Happy first episode to you.
3: <laughs> okay. So I have a question to get you warmed up for next episode. What's that? You're walking into a subway. <laughs>
0: Wait, Subway, Subway store or like oh. the Subway? The, the Oasis, the green
3: and yellow Subway sign. You're starving. It's lunchtime. What's your order?
0: Okay. <laughs> so I go in, <laughs> I'm salivating right now. Just thinking <laughs> about it. <laughs> uh, so I get, and gluten makes my stomach hurt. So we get the gluten-free bread, which okay. not all Subway locations have. Oh, Super disappointing sometimes Mm -hmm. if they don't have it, because then I have to get the salad, which is... Disappointing. Yeah, I've had one of those before. It's just the contents of your sub. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. Uh... But then I get the chicken, like the oven-roasted chicken, Mm -hmm. with most of the toppings except for tomatoes. Okay. And then I get a little bit of aioli on there. Okay. Aioli. No, they have... So they have, um, I think it's a garlic aioli. Okay. And then a pesto. Oh,
3: my goodness. I didn't even know they had pesto or aioli. That sounds good. That sounds good.
0: Not all of them do have pesto. Do you not like tomatoes? It's so strange. I like, and this is, I'm very weird with certain foods, as I feel like you've probably come to know (laughs) earlier with this podcast, but I like tomatoes on their own, but I don't really like them in salads or sandwiches. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I feel like they're too dominating. Oh, hmm. In salads too. Yeah, unless it's a caprese salad.
3: Okay, okay, okay. <laughs>
0: Very specific guidelines. You have a you have, she has an
3: Excel spreadsheet for her tomato preferences. <laughs> okay, my favorite sub. I definitely sometimes do oven roasted chicken. Okay, I do six inch honey oat bread, mm-hmm. and then I do toasted with cheese, of course. Of course, I've got the cheese. <laughs> yeah. And then I usually go with the white cheese, which I think is Swiss, but it's also just like white American cheese, I think. <laughs> and then I do sweet onion, chicken, teriyaki sometimes, or I just do onion, oven roasted chicken and I do every veg. I'm just like, do them all. Cause it's, it's like too much work to name them all specifically. So I'm just like, dre- all dressed, please. And mm-hmm. then, um, I just do mayo and sub
0: sauce nice i good love choice. the subsauce it's subsauce so good is
3: yeah okay mm-hmm. so that's your teaser for next week it'll get you thinking about our next topic and thank you for listening yeah thanks for
0: listening everyone thanks for listening to this episode of dietetics after dark You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at thenutritionjunkie.com slash dieteticsafterdark. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at dieteticsafterdark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com.
3: This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about Earworm Radio at earwormradio.com.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with
1: quins.